I want to begin today with some quotes. I ask those who've been praying for North Korea from all around the world to pray for North Korea to be able to come to the gospel. That was He Yeol, a North Korean believer. You know, the penalty for being a Christian in North Korea is the death sentence. Believers are either killed instantly or sent to labor camps with their entire family, and many don't make it out alive. How we survive daily, only God knows. He has been kind, but we're tired of all the deaths. This is the words of a secret Afghan believer. It's impossible to live openly as a Christian in Afghanistan. Leaving Islam is considered shameful and Christian converts are forced to flee the country or be killed. We were all dead, but Jesus came to save us and gave us new life. These are the words of Mumina, a Somali believer. It's impossible to publicly worship or declare your faith in Somalia. Islam is considered a crucial part of Somali identity and anyone who is suspected to be a Christian convert is often assaulted or humiliated in public. In Pakistan, Christians are considered second-class citizens in this strongly Islamic country. They're usually given jobs perceived as low, dirty and dishonourable. I share these with you today because uh, these are the very lives that of people living right now today in our world. And uh, these are the very quotes of people who are suffering and are dealing with all sorts of persecution because of their faith in Christ. I share these with you today because likely, as we read our text today in Hebrews, uh, this was the sort of life of the people living in that time, of Christians living in that time. They faced heavy persecution under Nero. But before we get there, let me, uh, let me just introduce myself. My name's Nathan. Uh, if you don't know me, there's plenty of new faces that I haven't met yet. So, hi. Um, I'm a son to the Father God. I'm a husband to my beautiful wife, Renee, and father to four incredible children, Phoebe, Holly, Elisha, and Eve. Today will be another instalment in our series called A Beautiful Irony. The core message of this series is that for a follower of Jesus Christ, life has the potential to flourish through death and difficulty. Jaden preached, you might remember from Matthew 10, that life in Christ means death to self by means of persecution and opposition, but with the hope that God will help. Matt preached from John 20 about Christ's resurrection being the means of our resurrection from death, both now and in eternity. Last week, I showed how marriage between a man and a woman is the mysterious image of Christ and his church. A husband lovingly laying down his life for his wife and a wife submitting to her husband. Before we read the text, let me ask this core question today. What do you imagine as the good life? Give you a moment because it's a fairly weighty question. What do you imagine as the good life? I don't mean tell me the right answer. Tell me what you actually imagine. Because uh, when you consider it, your life actually reflects your pursuit of your vision of the good life. When you consider it, uh, your day-to-day life 
you actually uh, show what you truly love most and what you're driving towards by the very day-to-day activities and how you engage in them. Today, the scripture, though, leads us to remember the vision of the good life before God as he disciplines us. The quotes, as I mentioned earlier, were of real-time human beings living in this world who face trial and difficulty, even death. And I wanted to share those because that's the setting, as I said, of the audience to whom our text was written. But if I said that these examples were examples of God disciplining those he loves, I wonder what you'd think. Sometimes we get the idea that discipline is, uh, is some sort of um, constant retribution, uh, some sort of nasty thing that we should avoid at all costs. Um, perhaps even your own ideas of discipline as you've grown up in your own family home uh, were not a great example of discipline. So I want to acknowledge that as I say the word discipline to you, you've probably got all sorts of meanings coming out. But as we look at the scripture today, as we look at the text today, hopefully it's going to reshape that a little bit for you. So let's open up the scripture. It's Hebrews 12, verse 3 to 13. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 to 13. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3 to 13. From verse 3 it says this, Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. Today I want to look at three things. Being faint-hearted or losing heart. Secondly, fatherly discipline. And finally, bending outward and upward. We're tired of all the deaths, said that unknown believer in Afghanistan. You can hear some sort of faint-heartedness here. This believer hears and likely witnesses the persecution and even the death of their fellow believer. I know that there are probably people sitting here who experience faint-heartedness as you live and share your faith with your families, with your neighbours, with your co-workers, maybe even at your school, and it actually seems it's to no avail. The faith, uh, in fact, you cop some flack, sorry, over it through colourful words and even wrongful accusations. The faith that once kept you firm and steady is now becoming fainter. 
And therefore, you're becoming fainter. You're, you're losing heart. You become tired. I wonder if you relate to that. But I also want to tap into another possible reason for faint-heartedness amongst believers. And this is the idea of Akedia. Akedia, otherwise known as sloth, according to the ancients, was a form of sin. They would call it the noonday devil. There was an Egyptian monk named Evagrius Ponticus who defined it this way. It's something that moves the monk in the late afternoon and causes the monk to become impatient and anxious at his prayers and and just want to be busy. So the monk goes outside, leaves the place of his work, And looks for distractions and is oftentimes impatient with the work that God's given him to do, which in this case is the prayers. Oftentimes the monk given to sloth will become very busy, which is the opposite to what we associate with slothfulness. He'll become busy with distractions from the very task that God had given him to do. I wonder if you can relate to this. I certainly can and I have done throughout my life. There was an author named R.J. Snell, and he wrote a book on this very topic. He titled it, Akedia and Its Discontents, Metaphysical Boredom in an Empire of Desire. To summarize, he comments that there exists in the human condition a refusal of the work that God has given us to do. Not so much laziness, but a refusal to to accept the work in front of us. The demon of sloth sends hatred against place, against life itself, and against the good work that God has granted for you for that day. I'll read it again. The demon of sloth sends hatred against place, against life, and against the good work that God has given you to do. So in love with our freedom, he says, that we reject the bonds of God's friendship. We hate the kind of friendship of God that might even cause us to do menial work. And walk through painful and difficult temptations. This obsession with freedom of defining ourselves and our identity, he says, means we resist even our most basic human limitations. We can only be present in one place at one time. We live in one house, in one street, in one neighborhood. We must stop to prepare food, to eat that food, to drink, dare I say it, to go to the toilet, to shower, to wash up, to wash clothes, to sleep, to take care of people around us. And if we refuse these limitations, if we hate them as if they impose on our freedom, we are actually refusing friendship with God. We become faint-hearted in our struggle, tired of the place, the life, and the good work that God has given for us this day. If we reject friendship with God in this way, if we say, no, I just, I've got to resist those limitations. I can't handle them. I've got to press on and be something more than what my limitations give me. Uh, what we end up doing is actually getting this sense of loneliness. Because if we're running our lives the way that we want to run them and we can't handle the very human limitations of just being human, the way God designed us and the way God designed and ordered the world... Well, potentially, uh, we miss out. Uh, we, we struggle or face difficulty or we go through suffering. And because we're so resistant against the God who imposed these limitations, 
uh, we actually find ourselves alone. So where can we turn when we find those limitations too much? Where, where can we turn when we find ourselves in painful difficulty or struggle? Well, you can't turn to God because he's the one who put it there. He's the one who, he's the one who um, gave it to you. Uh, so where do you turn? Well, you can only turn to yourself. And when you turn inwards, when you turn in on yourself, what ends up happening is you get tired and really faint-hearted. And uh, you struggle against what seems to be these limitations. I noticed this most acutely as I recently sat by my grandmother's bedside on the eve of her death. It was a Sunday evening and we knew that her health was declining. As I sat there, I had my mobile phone begging me to pick it up and fill the time. Maybe you've felt that before. It was running out of battery and I was wondering how I'd communicate with people if I had to drive home the hour that I had to drive home that night. My mind was everywhere else but there in that room. Then I had my work, the final weeks of school term, assessments, assignments needed to be administered and marked, begging me to think upon them and wonder how it was all going to get done. The limitations, uh, sorry, in that moment it seemed that sitting here, uh, sitting here was an interruption to what was really important. I hope you understand the wrestle here. So uh, it was a, quite a frantic time of term. It was just a, that was the season that I was in. And here my grandmother was um, sadly dying. She, she was coming to the end of her life. And so there was this silly wrestle going on inside. Maybe you felt the wrestle in some other way, but there was this silly wrestle going inside. These other things seem really important. They're pressing. They're, they're, I need to do those things. Yet there was this wonderful opportunity right there sitting in a room. The limitation this moment placed on my productivity, on my temptation to try and be in more than one place at a time with my f- mobile phone was beginning to sink in. But as I continued to sit... I paused to remember Jesus' words to look after the widow and those who are sick, my grandmother. I remembered what Jaden had preached a few weeks prior, that God in Christ had rescued us from the slavery of the fear to death. Suddenly the voice of my beckoning mobile phone, the pressure of my loss in productivity began to silence. As I held her hand, there was a strong sense that this is the very place, the only place I ought to be, and I could settle into those very real limitations. God was present there as I sang praises, thanked her for a life well lived through tears and locked eyes with her whenever she stirred. God in his kindness has imposed the limitations of my grandmother's last moments as an interruption to my busy life and what I thought was really, really important. He disciplined me and he drew me near in those last moments to himself, not by helping me to escape to my distractions, but instead by keeping me present in the only place I could actually physically be. And that was there in that room with my grandmother. So Hebrews says, Consider him who endured from sinners sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. You haven't struggled against sin to the point of shedding blood. It cannot be that weakness or or... It cannot be weakness or intolerable, sorry, to find ourselves weak and vulnerable and dependent on someone greater. If Jesus himself knew these things to be weak, to be vulnerable, to be dependent upon someone greater, 
we can't be mistaken into thinking that we might be greater than our master. This really stood out to me uh, a few weeks ago when uh, Jaden was preaching. Suddenly I realized I thought that I could somehow live this life that was different to the life that Christ might have lived. I would somehow be able to live this life that was free of uh, the suffering that others impose, that might have been free from my own struggle against temptation and sin. But in fact, Christ walked that road before me. So it would be silly for me to think that somehow my life would be different, that I would be greater than my master in being able to skip all that stuff. Um, I wonder, I wonder if you get the same sense sometimes. If Christ experienced difficulty, asked his father if there was another way to save his people, sweat drops of blood, experienced homelessness and temptation, then we shouldn't expect differently. We can see out of these two things, we can see that weariness and faint-heartedness comes as you live and breathe your faith in Christ in community. But we can also see that the weariness and faint-heartedness also comes as we struggle against sin, perhaps a tiring hatred of the place we're in, of the life that we currently have, or of the work that God has granted for us to do this day. At times, we can be mistaken, though. As if the current placement and circumstances of our lives is a mistake on God's behalf. But perhaps God is up to something and we've forgotten what he's really like. Maybe God is up to something right now in this very moment, in this very place that you find yourself. But perhaps you've forgotten what he's like. Let's go to point number two, fatherly discipline. If you look at the text again with me, uh, from verse 5, it says this, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who had disciplined us and and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of Spirits and live? For they disciplined for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained for it. God, the perfect father, the one whom we worshipped this morning, bless the Lord, O my soul. Bless the Lord. I'm walking through difficult times. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This God that we've worshipped this morning disciplines, reproves, chastises the ones whom he loves. Not the ones he hates, which is sometimes what I think we forget. Or sometimes when I compare my life with somebody else and I look at the exterior of their life and think, man, they've they've got it made. They just walk through life cruisy. They just walk through life easy. I guarantee you it's not the case. I guarantee you there's some sort of internal struggle going on. I guarantee you they've walked through suffering in the past. There's no human that has not faced what we face, but it's tempting to sometimes think that way. Oh, well, God must like them. They, they must have a blessed life because they don't have the suffering that I've faced. 
it's not the right comparison here. If we're really honest, though, just knowing this fact that God disciplines the ones he loves isn't all that helpful. (laughs) I mean, especially when you're in the thick of it. Especially when you're in the trial or the pain or the suffering or the struggle against sin that seems to be repetitive over and over again. Oh yeah, God, I repented of that. Here I find myself again doing the same stupid thing I always did. Why? Why do I have to struggle against sin? Well, you're not alone. You're not alone. And God hasn't left you alone. He hasn't left you to deal with it on your own. Consider a father for a moment, who neglects his children. Because this is what the scripture does. The scripture sort of goes from the lesser, the, the earthly human father, to the greater, the father of spirits, the father of our spirit, of, of our spiritual life. Consider a father who neglects his children and leaves them to their own devices. They get in trouble, they have to find a way out. They get injured out of their own folly, well, they have to find their own help. Their will and their emotions run wild. They get angry. They get sad. They're happy. They're sort of all over the place. Maybe you've met children like this. We've all seen children like this. Some of our own children are like this. All of our children. All, let's be honest. We were like this. Well, just help yourself. Go work it out, mate. (laughs) Neglectful father. Their will and emotions run wild. They have to find their own way of bringing it under control or destroy themselves and the people around them in the process because we know that happens with um, unruly children and an unruly father. But now consider, jump with me to a father who cares. He knows he's imperfect, but he does his best to discipline his children because he loves them and desires good for their future. I do want to make mention here that the text itself speaks of fathers and sons. But let's assume for a moment <clears throat> that, that that is a reflection, that, that sons is a very, um, it's a very inclusive term in that it means sons and daughters, it's children. So um, just, wanted to, just wanted to be clear on that. Uh, he teaches them, uh, so this father... Uh, he does his best to discipline his children because he loves them and desires good for their future. He teaches them. He teaches them how to live well. He teaches them how to know right from wrong. He takes time to discipline so that his children learn from their mistakes and so gives them a way out of their mess. He seeks help when they're injured and he helps, find, helps them find wisdom so that they don't repeat the folly. He steps in when their will and emotions run wild and disciplines them so that their lives bless the Lord and bless their neighbours. And while the discipline would be painful for them at the time, there's hope that it will bring good fruit in the future. Yet, every parent knows this, it doesn't always happen the right way every time. (laughs) Any mum and dad who become a mum and dad who set out on the journey of parenthood with a good desire to train up their children and to to lead their children and to discipline their children and teach them. Any parent knows that they're human and that they fail really, really badly sometimes. Sometimes it can come out in yelling, condemning words or it can come out in disciplining and in anger. And here's the limitation of that example. So you've got the the father who neglects his kids, just doesn't really care. The father who cares and gets the job done but does that all, all too, too um, easily, imperfectly. 
That's where the scripture says. It says, um, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us for a time, for a short time, as it seemed best to them. So you've still got an earthly father who has a will that wants something. Maybe it's peace and quiet, and so he disciplines. Can you, can you see that? So um, this discipline happens, but there's a limit to uh, this type of fatherhood. Maybe it's uh, neglecting to discipline at all out of fear that the children won't like them. You've got a father who neglects his children, a father who cares but doesn't get it right all the time. And then you've got God. God names himself Father and it's no accident. The neglectful father doesn't even come close to representing God the Father. Not even close. Billion light years. Doesn't even come close. God the Father never leaves us to our own devices. Unless, of course, that's what we want. We see that in Romans, right? Where he hands people over to the things that they most desperately want. He does what he can, but then he's like, okay, have what you want. (laughs) It's not going to go well for you, but have what you want. He's not the neglectful father. The father who cares comes a little closer to representing God the Father. But God the Father is still a billion times better. He is a perfect father who wants to share with us the best of himself. Notice that in there? I missed it until I read it a number of times. Notice that, verse 10. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. The best of God the Father, the the greatest of God the Father is what he actually wants to share with us. But how does he bring it about? He brings it about through loving discipline. In sharing his holiness, he wants to discipline us and and bring about the perfection uh, of his holiness in us. Unlike the caring earthly father who can only hope that his discipline will bear good fruit in the future and aim to get it right most of the time, God the Father has sovereign power. So not only can he order our discipline which can come through suffering, which can come through pain and trial and temptations. Uh, Not that God tempts, but can come through those challenging times. God not only orders our discipline, but he orders for it to work for our good. He's the only person who could actually bring that about. Our earthly fathers couldn't. They have a physical limitation. They have a finite limitation. But God the Father, oh no, he can... Not only order our discipline, he can actually bring it about for our good. He can order events. He can do what he needs to do to bring it about for our good in the future. I think that's what the author is getting at here. Rather than seeing his discipline as a confines of a cage, we must fight against that so that we must fight against and escape. Our trials, sufferings and struggle against sin are the confines of of the, lover, of the loving Father God who is sharing his holiness with us. I want to put an if in here. If. Because it seems there's an if in this scripture as well. It's in verse 11. Go with me to verse 11. For the moment, all discipline seems painful. Is there an amen to that? <laughs> it sucks. Discipline sucks. But you know it sucks for him too. God the Father, I mean, I'm a dad and I'm 
I try to do the best job as I can as a dad, but as I sit and discipline my kids sometimes, I, I get tears in my eyes because it pains me to have to discipline them. I don't want to have to, um, you know, I, I give a smack. I, I don't want to have to give a smack and inflict a small pinch of pain to help them remember sin's painful. I don't want to have to do that, but I know that perhaps if I do that, it's going to help them in the future to know the loving Father God and that he disciplines those he loves. And that that's going to bear far greater fruit than what I'm about to do. So for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Who to? Who to? To those who have been trained by it. So there's this pleasant fruit that comes as God disciplines his children. We walk through painful, challenging times, temptations to sin, the struggle against sin, the, uh, the, the challenging times of people sinning against us. We walk through those times, but we know that he's going to bring about good fruit if we're willing to be trained by it. Imagine with me now a child being disciplined, the parent with tears in their eyes, disciplines the child uh, in the hope that it will produce good fruit in the future. The child receives the discipline, runs off, and momentarily does the same wrong and stupid thing they did before. (laughs) Have they been trained by the discipline? Have they been trained by the discipline? No, it doesn't seem like it. doesn't seem like it. They've stubbornly refused. They hate the place they're in, the life that they have, and the work of obedience that God has given for them to do that day. If we as God's children refuse his discipline and run from him, we're refusing the deepest, most life-giving relationship we could ever have. But here's the thing. Just like that rebellious child, there's hope. Because a good father knows that their child goes back and does the same silly thing that they just told them and disciplined them for doing today. They go and do it tomorrow or the next day or three weeks down the track. There's hope because God's not done. If you've been in the place of that child and you've refused the life that God's given you, you refuse to accept it, you've um, butted up against whatever the thing is that you're working through um, and and you're refusing it, uh, maybe you're refusing the greatest and sweetest blessing that God the Father could have brought about in your life. If there's hope for that little child, there's hope for you. God the Father is not done and he's patient. He's long-suffering. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows the very difficult things that you're experiencing are real, but he's not done yet. He's patient. He's willing to keep giving mercy when you keep coming back to him. He's willing to keep giving grace in the long suffering that you may have to face. Here's my final point. Bend upwards and outwards. The final words in verse 12 to 13 are a refrain from Isaiah, knowing that God is the perfect father who disciplines those whom he loves and considering Jesus who's gone before you even unto death. Here's what he says. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that the lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. 
Look to Christ. It's this funny thing. We've always said, don't compare your suffering with others. But here, the author seems to say, compare your suffering with Christ. Because in doing that, if you compare your suffering and your pain and your difficulty to Christ, you know what? You'll find comfort. Because there's nothing that this Savior, Jesus Christ, hasn't gone through that's as painful or more painful or difficult uh, than what you're walking through. And so you find comfort in Christ. Christ has walked the road before you and he's resisted. Christ has walked the road before you and he's suffered. And he's dealt with all sorts of betrayal and he's dealt with all sorts of um, backslapping, backstabbing. He's walked it before you and he gives you hope to keep walking through it yourself. James K.A. Smith says this in his book, On the Road with St. Augustine. He says, to desire the aid of grace is the beginning of grace. If you come to the end of yourself and wonder if there's help and are surprised to find yourself at times hoping for a grace from beyond, it's a sign that grace is already at work. Keep asking. You don't have to believe in order to ask. Here's the thing. You can ask for help believing too. (laughs) Wanting help is its own nascent trust. The desire for grace is the first grace. Coming to the end of your self-sufficiency is the first revelation. Today is a good day to surrender to him and strengthen your weak knees to get up and to keep walking faithfully on the road that God is leading you. Paul also gives the imperative in 1 Thessalonians 5.18. He says this. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, rather than a pithy suck it up sort of statement, just give thanks, will you? No, it's not, it's not that at all. It's far more meaningful. It's, a, it's actually a weapon against something like Achidia. It's a weapon against the hatred of the place that I'm in, the hatred of the life that God's given me, the hatred of... Um, Uh, what it is that we're working through, the good work that God's given us to do this day. It's a weapon against that. It might be gritty. Mm. might be hard to say thanks and give thanks in a particular circumstance. But nonetheless, your giving thanks to God amongst trials and suffering is the beginning of remaining with him in and through it. It's the beginning of him remaining with you in and through it. It's a very present help in those moments of difficulty. Notice it's not giving thanks for it. We know it sucks. (laughs) You know, no kid sits on their parents' lap and says, thanks for that smack, mum and dad. (laughs) Thanks for sending me to the time out, mum and dad. They might say it later, but they don't say it in the moment, right? It's saying, God, you haven't made a mistake. Thank you. It mostly, most simply begins in the mundane, every day. Waking in the morning, giving thanks that you've got breath to breathe. Preparing and eating food, giving thanks that you've got food to prepare and eat. Giving thanks for the food that you do eat. 
looking above to see a roof over your head, giving thanks that you have a warm place to sleep. Giving thanks as you look in your wardrobe and see clothes to wear, not just one or two sets, but a myriad of sets. Giving thanks as you drive your car, that you're not walking from one place to the next. Giving thanks that you have legs that can walk and run. Giving thanks that you have arms that can throw and type and write. If you begin giving thanks in these circumstances, it will tend to be made easier when the storms come and when the suffering comes and when the trial comes to give thanks in those circumstances because it's this habitual giving thanks. I know that my God has not made a mistake. This sucks right now. This is painful right now. This discipline that you're leading through right now, it hurts. It hurts God and it hurts me. But he's not done. Bend outward. The words in in the center of this passage were words from Proverbs. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary of his reproof. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Just as that father was passing on wisdom to his son in Proverbs, there's wisdom to be gained as you bend outward. So not only do we bend upward, we bend outward. Uh, There's wisdom to be sought among our entanglements, among our suffering and among our trials. Part of lifting drooping hands and strengthening weak needs in the midst of Lord's discipline is to seek wisdom. Open your Bible and seek it out. Ask your parents, your community group leader, or the pastor or care team here at church. This is what someone does who is trained by the Lord's discipline. As each believer does this and shares with others on the journey, others sense the hope that they can lift their drooping heads and strengthen their weak knees. You know what? You should share the pain of your journey. Maybe it's not right in the thick of it, but perhaps afterwards you should share the pain of your journey as you walk with other people in your life. It's good for them. It's good to hear. I, we're, I was at a conference a few weeks ago and Martin Isles stood up. Um, he's faced all sorts of uh, trouble and persecution for the things that he says uh, as he leads the Australian Christian Lobby. But do you know, it was great to hear him as he reflected on his own journey in that. And there was a strengthening of my weak knees as I heard him talk faithfully and say, come on, we, we can stay the road. We can follow the path. It's, it's good for us to do that. So instead of my knees getting out of joint, as this scripture says, instead of my, uh, my pain and my difficulty getting me out of joint so that I'm lame and I can't keep walking, hearing the stories of you, hearing other stories of pain and suffering, as I mentioned at the beginning, that's what should strengthen our weak knees. That's part of the deal. So what's your vision of the good life today? Is it to be a glad son or daughter of God? Is it to bring all of your life subject to the perfect father who bends to listen and give answer to your cries for mercy during suffering and your temptations or your folly? Who knows you in the mess of your sin and gives grace and forgiveness to those who ask of him? Who kindly leads you towards repentance so that your heart can find peace with him and faith that gives life into eternity? Who disciplines those whom he loves? and gives the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those children who are willing to be trained by it.